Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. Solo show being recorded tonight on Monday, January 3rd. Due to a few scheduling conflicts, we will have Tyler Rucker on. We'll be recording that show tomorrow, the 4th. Hopefully, we'll be getting that episode out on Thursday to talk about some of the guys mentioned in my Morning Dunk column. If you have not read the latest edition of the Morning Dunk, please go check that out over on the No Ceiling Substack, noceilings.substack.com. Please go and subscribe. We are growing in readership by the day, so we definitely thank everyone for the support. Absolutely having a blast writing for No Ceilings, being able to get my thoughts out on a weekly basis. More content to come from me on that front as I start mixing in a few individual pieces, some, some NBA content, get that back into the mix. 2022 is going to be a great year for writing, and I hope everyone has had a great holiday and a happy new year getting back into the swing of things. And what better way to get back into the swing of podcasting with draft content in general than doing a big board update, the Draft Deeper Big Board 2.0. I'm going to go over some things today. We'll go through the top 30 names. I won't spend a too, too much time on some people, but other prospects most notably some of the, the the guys that did take massive jumps up, some of the new guys in the rankings. And then I'll go through a few honorable mentions towards the end as well. Some guys who I'm, I'm still keeping an eye on throughout this evaluation process. They just didn't make the cut for this top 30 quite yet. So before I start talking about some of the top names on the board, I just want to give a general disclaimer at the top of this podcast this was a very rough big board to make, um, more rough than it usually is at this time of the year. I know that when I come out with like a 1.0 board or when I'm first starting to shift through different tiers, try and rank some guys, it, 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 it's a little rough at the beginning because I try and give prospects, especially the freshmen, the benefit of the doubt. I try not to make too many changes to who I was looking at and, and where I stood preseason, but now we get into the January edition of the board. We have enough of a sample size to really start coming to conclusions on prospects. And the main conclusion I can come to at this current moment in time is there are a lot of freshmen who just aren't blowing me away. And the game of college basketball is, I think, tougher than a lot of people want to initially give credit to, especially when you consider the transfer portal has changed this game in so many ways, a lot of these traditional powers who pride themselves in bringing in top flight freshmen are older programs now. And obviously you see that older trend across the country. These teams are a lot more experienced. They're a lot tougher. And naturally when, when some of these good to great to excellent coaches have veteran talent that, that they're able to put in place on both ends of the floor, it's a lot easier to scheme differently and change things up on the fly to adjust to their opponents with more veteran and experienced players at hand than freshmen who are trying to get used to the game and the speed of the college game itself on top of trying to better some of their individual skill sets and figure out how they sort of fit into everything. So that's definitely, I think, taken into a, should be taken into account and has definitely contributed to the lack of success that some of these freshmen have had. They're just going up against better players and better teams. So there are a number of guys, like I said, who I'll mention at the tail end of the podcast who I'm still keeping an eye on, and it would not shock me at all 
if there's still more movement on this board as we get to the 3.0 edition that hopefully I'll be launching sometime in February, especially that 20 to 30 range. There's so much going on. The good news is I, I pretty much nailed down a top 100 to keep whittling at at this point, even more so, I guess, uh, better to say a top 75. So that's good news. The, there are a lot of names that, that I've been able to sift through and, and kind of cross off in terms of what I'm expecting, where I'm expecting them to be ranked for this 2022 draft. But nevertheless, that, that essentially 20 through 75 is just an absolute gauntlet right now. So I'm expecting some changes. I'm expecting about the, the top 14 to 15 to 16 names here to relatively stay the same in terms of the guys I have featured on the board. Maybe some slight movements within those rankings, depending on how I ultimately grade them out by tier once we get closer to the end of the season or at least towards tournament time. But yeah, that, that 17 through 20 all the way down to 30, there will definitely be movement as I continue to, to update the board. Not to necessarily treat this as a prospect's power rankings, as I know Chad Ford, Jeremy Wu, Jonathan Wasserman, experts in the media scouting field, they try not to do that. They try to project out towards what they think is going to happen by draft time based on their personal evaluations, by intel they're getting. I'm trying to rank this board based on who I can actually see being in the 20 and, and fully declare for the 2022 draft. There are a lot of freshmen, especially, who I would recommend going back to school, maybe playing another year overseas. In, in, in some instances, that's been, has been talked about on this podcast and, and other mediums uh, on the No Ceilings Network. Somebody like Peyton Watson, for example, maybe they, they go to like the G League Ignite team for a year and better polish up on their skills if they don't want to necessarily come back to school or enter the transfer portal. There are options for some of these guys to better themselves, but if they really want to see their stocks soar, if they want to be drafted higher, and another full disclaimer, I have not started studying the 2023 class in depth yet, so um, I, I've had some people talk to me and or mention on social media about how the 2023 class might affect some decisions for these players to declare for the 2022 draft or kind of buy their time a little bit and try to improve their stock heading into 2023. I mean, you'll, you'll hear me talk about a number of sophomores who are massive, have massively risen up my board compared to where they were even at the end of the, the 2021 draft cycle last year. So I I'm a, firm believer in going back to school and getting better. I think that shows a sign of maturity. I think that shows a willingness to work, to adapt. You're not just looking for a payday, although I don't necessarily want to take anything away from the guys who hear that they're likely going to go in the first round. They want to secure that bag. That's life-changing money. That's, that's money that can change that individual prospect's life, that can change their family's life down the road. It's an important first paycheck to claim. But if you're telling me if I have certain things to work on, say I'm a projected 
late first round pick, early second round pick. There's a certain list of things for me to work on. And I know that I can work on those things and get better and better showcase those talents by going back to school for another year, maybe see my stock boost up into the lottery or even maybe the, the, the top 10 of the first round. It's, it's a tough decision to, to make whether you want that instant gratification or you want to bet on yourself, go back to school and try to improve your odds. So I, I can't make that decision for, for anyone. I can try and, and, and say as best as I can on this podcast who I feel believe would benefit from doing that. But I don't judge anybody's decision. I don't judge any prospect's decision, whether they want to, to stay in school or they want to enter the draft. That's up to them. The best that I can do is, is give an honest evaluation on these prospects currently as they are with what I've seen in front of me and the, some of the numbers I have in front of me. So without further ado, let's get into it. So number one on the board, Jabari Smith Jr. out of Auburn, the 6'10 forward. I think he's become the number one prospect overall on a lot of people's boards up to this point. I don't want to spend too much time on the numbers. Just know that when we start breaking down some of these prospects and we get to like a Chet Holmgren and a Palo Bincaro, who are two and three on my board right now, respectively, I don't envision their NBA fits as clean cut in terms of them being able to definitely impact a franchise and carry them to heights greater than if they weren't on the roster as easily as I can Jabari Smith. I think Jabari Smith He's not a floor raiser in terms of he creates for others. He's going to get everybody better shots by default because of his passing ability. He's passing guys open. I don't mean raising the floor like that. I mean raising the floor in terms of I think any NBA team could use a Jabari Smith. I think he fits with virtually any team you want to throw out there, especially those teams looking to draft at the top because of his, his stretching the floor ability, his shooting ability. His defensive versatility, he may not be the best of the best rim protector in terms of shot blocking, but he is he is a rim deterrent. He's a versatile defender on the perimeter. He doubles really well. He traps really well. His footwork is superb for someone his size. And now you're starting to see him in some of these games take some of those shots and, and, and nail them off the bounce. That's something that we saw Jabari Smith struggle with early on at Auburn. Now he's starting to, to take and make some of those looks. So it, it leaves me with the impression similar to somebody else I'm going to talk to about, uh, talk about in a little bit, how much more can they actually grow their games? How much better can someone like Jabari Smith keep getting even within this college season? So I don't think his game is done growing in the slightest. I still, I still think he has plenty of room to tap into so that's why I'm going to have Jabari Smith number one on my board. Similar to Chet Holmgren, and by the way, the battle for number one, again, we are so early in the process. The battle for number one to me is not over. I could still have Chet Holmgren number one on my board by the end of the year. I see these two as well as Paolo being right now the tier two players in this class. I don't see a tier one player. I know that I said that there was, there was a possibility that, that I could come to that conclusion when I did the 1.0 board podcast. The more I watch these guys, the more I don't see that that tier one MVP caliber talent like I have in years past. But these are still really good players, potential all-stars down the road, max contract type of players. So I have them slotted in as tier two. But Chet Holmgren, his defensive impact we know is absurd. 
on the offensive end. It's really going to come down to his shot-making ability. He wants to take some of those shots from the perimeter, those spot-up three-point shots, some of those fadeaways out of the post. We know he finishes a ridiculous percentage of his shots inside, three feet and in when he's around the basket. I want to see a little bit more in terms of shot-making potential from the perimeter. I think he's got good mechanics. He's got a good stroke. I've talked about that with Tyler Rucker on this very podcast. When, when Tyler and Albert got to see him out in Vegas, they talked about how in warm-ups the shot was so fluid. It looked clean off his hand. I just want to see more of it in-game before I definitely say that he's the number one guy on my board ahead of Jabari Smith, although Chet Holmgren's a better passer than Jabari and Paolo. To, to, to that extent, he's arguably the best defensive prospect in this class. So he is right there. It is a neck-and-neck neck race between Jabari and Chet. I just think Jabari still has more in his bag to show us offensively, and he's already started to do some impressive things. And then Paolo Bencaro, number three, the 6'10", 250-pound forward. We, we know some of the comps out there, the, the, the Carlmel Anthony type of comp, the, the healthy Jabari Parker type of comp. Those are tremendous offensive players to be able to bring into to your franchise. But there's more that you that you need around somebody like that versus a Chet Holmgren or a Jabari Smith, who's just an easier plug-and-play type of talent. I think you need a little more around Paolo Bencaro in terms of what you actually need to raise the team's floor. I don't think he exclusively does that on his own with with just his scoring ability. Now, he is a better passer, I think, than people give him credit for. He can pass guys open. He just doesn't do it for me on the defensive end. I don't think he's necessarily been terrible defensively, but I wouldn't say he's been good to great on that end either or in the same realm as a Jabari Smith or a Chet Holmgren. So those are those are some of the things that really hold me back in giving him that number one grade that I had on him on the first edition of the big board. And then similar to Chet, he's got to show that he's a better outside shooter. I know that you, you go back and watch some of the film of the, the Duke Gonzaga game, for example, where he, he was hitting those pull-up threes in transition. That looks good. But off the catch, I don't love his approach. I don't love his shot mechanics. I think he needs to make some slight adjustments, make some make some tweaks to the types of shots that he's taking off the bounce that he needs to get downhill. He needs to be more aggressive and get to the rim. That was one of the bigger call-outs I had on Paolo's game before we got into this college season was that we needed to see him be aggressive and attack the basket and take advantage of his size. Finishing, we have not seen that as much. Sort of the, the more the season's gone along, the more we've seen Paolo kind of go back to it, to his bad habits and – settle for a lot of tough mid-range looks that I don't think he ultimately has to settle for. I think he he's he's certainly not a bad shot creator. I think his handle is actually a little underrated at this point. He can size a guy up, take him off the bounce, especially someone who's a similar size to him. He's 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 a unique, a physically unique individual. I think he can be much better at getting downhill, getting more aggressive, getting into the basket. And that would definitely up his scoring numbers, his efficiencies. But regardless where he's at right now, you still see some of the potential when you go back and you watch the film. If you're giving him the ceiling of some of those comps, you can't take that player, or at least I refuse to rank that player lower than three, even though the Jay Nivey 
the number four player on my board, has done some impressive, impressive things coming back to school this year for Purdue. He's one of the better pick and roll guards that we have in the country when he's actually put into those positions to succeed. He's one of the best transition players that we have currently playing college basketball. He's improved the jump shot to a certain extent. I still don't. I don't love the the setup into his shot, especially off the bounce when, when he has that extra second to get himself into, into his shot and spot up and nail that open three. He can do it. I just don't buy his shooting ability off the bounce, his mid-range game. I don't love his floater in the lane. So guards in the NBA nowadays have to be a little a little craftier than exclusively just finishing around the basket or hitting like a wide open three-point shot. You have to have some of that mid-range craft, some of that ability when somebody runs you off your spots. I just want to see more consistency from Ivy in that regard before I would move him ahead of somebody like like a Paolo Bencaro. I, I think that Ivy right now at four is a pretty safe bet. It, it's also a little criminal that we don't get to see him in a more ball-dominant role at Purdue. They play that post-centric offense where Ivy is used a lot more off the ball than he is on the ball. We're robbed a little bit to see what more of his potential could be as a creator, but when we have gotten looks at him as a pick-and-roll creator in the half court, he's done He's done a great job with it. And I, I, I've really been pleased with some of the reads I've seen him make on film. So I'm going to have Jay Ivey at four. Kendall Brown at five. He does move up a little bit from my previous big board. I had Patrick Baldwin Jr., at the five spot, Pat Baldwin has slid down my board, not terribly far, but he has slid enough to the point where we started to get some of these other names in the mix who have really impressed me in, in college basketball. And it, it, it's not that Kendall Brown has completely blown me away because he's not a high usage type of shot maker. He's not a high usage offensive player. He's somebody who loves to get out, run in transition, finish effectively in transition, He's a great decision maker in the half court. You get him moving off the bounce. He can he can hit pull-up shots. We, we've seen some examples of that. Obviously, he, he loves passing off of a live dribble. He's a great cutter. He's just one of those connector type of pieces that an NBA team would love to have. And then when you factor in his 6'8 size, his long wingspan, his defensive versatility, He's one of those guys I was talking about, similar to Jabari Smith. I've seen examples of Kendall Brown doing some things on film that then make me sit back and go, what if he tried to do some of this more often, like some of the off-the-bounce shot-making, for example? How much more upside does he have to tap into? And he is only a freshman. You would obviously expect him to get better once he gets into the NBA. So some of these guys below him definitely have a chance to make a better impression on me and rise a little higher than, than Kendall on my board. But right now I'm comfortable with having Kendall Brown right there at five. I think that he's a tremendous talent, somebody with upside to bet on with his size, with his passing instincts, with his defensive ability, some of the flashes we've seen of off-the-bounce scoring. I just like the package that's there at five. Jalen Duran, one of these guys who I do want to spend a little bit of time on in terms of reading off some numbers. 11.1 points per game, 7.5 rebounds per game, 67.6% shooting from the field. He's only shooting just under 58% from the free throw line, but he is averaging 2.6 blocks per game. He has a 24.8 PER as a freshman and a 66.3 true shooting percentage. 
all the complaints that I want to have about him on the offensive end, how he isn't assertive enough, he isn't aggressive enough looking for his own shot. He still rates out in the 88th percentile in terms of total offense because he's really good at what he does. He's really effective on the offensive glass. He's in the 91st percentile scoring on putbacks, 96th percentile in transition scoring. I would love to see him operate better as a role man in pick and rolls. I would love to see him actively get himself in more of those situations. I would like to see him get more opportunities to show that he's better than just the 30th percentile on scoring off post-ups. But overall, when he does get the ball around the basket, when he's able to act as a, a, a vertical lob threat, or finish inside and transition, he is in the 95th percentile in terms of scoring around the basket. So you factor in some of his defensive versatility as well, some of the flashes we've seen of him either playmaking off the short roll or in Memphis's last game against Wichita State, we saw him hit those four mid-range jumpers. That was really good to see. I haven't always been in love with his touch, his, his jump shooting mechanics. I'm still not, but the fact that we're starting to see some evidence of him being useful off short rolls I'm not going to make the Bam Adebayo comparison. I'm not going to make the Anyeka Kongu comparisons necessarily, but if I were to lean towards one of those two being more of the comp, I'd say it's more of like what we saw Anyeka Kongu in in college. Anyeka Kongu, I think, was a better face-up big overall, but you see Jalen Dern starting to get some of that ability, himself starting to showcase some of that ability. Once he gets more up to speed, with processing the game at a higher level, I think that's really when you start to see the upside, the, the physical tools, the ta- the natural talent, the raw talent. He has the raw ability to impact the game, which is why I have him at six. Given the fact that I just haven't been blown away by some of these other prospects, it leads me to want to rank more of a quote-unquote sure thing in terms of natural ability and size near the top of my board as opposed to bending on some of the other guys that we can talk about as we get further along in these rankings. So those six guys, I think for the most part, are the consensus guys on the majority of major media outlet boards right now. Here's where we start to get a little more creative in this, in this seven to 12 range. I have Johnny Davis at seven right now. Johnny Davis, a lot of people have really been buzzing about him on social media myself included because of his mature approach to scoring the basketball the fact that he does so so much of his damage taking mid-range shots hitting tough mid-range shots floaters drives to the basket he gets to the free throw line the fact that he's averaging 20.8 points per game he's only shooting 34 percent from three-point range obviously you would like to see that number tick up a little bit especially if we're talking about him being in, in the top seven top eight range of the draft but Given the volume and the offensive responsibility that he does have on his shoulders, averaging that 20.8 points per game on 43.8% shooting overall and approaching offense in some of the ways that I outlined, it really makes me wonder when, when you start getting later into the lottery, the, the phrase star hunting is, is used so often because that's really what you should be doing with a lottery pick. You should be star hunting for as long as possible. And when we take a look at some of these other guards and wings in terms of how they get their buckets, how efficiently they get their buckets, what types of approaches generally lead to earlier success in the NBA than not. I look at Johnny Davis and that's the type of guard I can see having that that star level upside. 
I'm not saying that he's definitely going to get there, but when we talk about guys who I would rather bet on in this draft, especially when you go back and watch some of the film, Johnny Davis is right there for me. 72nd percentile in total offense, 80th percentile in total defense. If you haven't listened to our most recent No Ceilings podcast that Tyler Metcalf hosted with Chip Jones, Tyler gives a great breakdown as to why he also sees Johnny Davis as one of the better guard bets in this draft class, why he has him so high up on his board. He talked about some of the defensive mechanics that he likes, some of the footwork that he sees from Davis. I'm in total agreement. But you go back and look at some of the other offensive numbers, 89th percentile in terms of scoring out of pick and roll sets, 70th percentile on spot ups, 67th percentile scoring off screens, 58th in transition, 52nd on handoffs, 47th on post-ups, 44th in isolation. What a diverse shot profile. I, I know that, that Tyler's talked about this a little bit in some of our private group chats, but it's like w- w- Wisconsin kind of let him off the leash, right? They, they've unleashed Johnny Davis this year. I know they kind of need him to be Superman for that team. That is not a good offensive team around him. They have good to great defensive pieces, and I think they play defense really well as a, as a collective unit. But in terms of offensive talent, that – it's a mediocre offensive team when when you take out Davis's impact. Davis makes them a good enough offensive team to rack up wins in college basketball this year. But that type of shot profile, the fact that he's been allowed to experiment scoring in so many different ways on that team, again, how much responsibility he's had on his shoulders and the fact that up until the the, the recent quote-unquote stinker for him where he shot 6-23, from the field in their most recent game. And again, I'm recording this podcast before the Purdue game tonight. It, it's honestly remarkable that he's kept it rolling for, for, for this long. And I don't expect that to change over the course of the year. He seems like one of these rare players who he came back to school and he's single-handedly lifting his team to new heights offensively. And if this Wisconsin team makes a deep run in the NCAA tournament and it's almost exclusively due to his success and his offensive level, it would not shock me to see his name rise even higher past a Duran, past a Brown, get himself firmly in that conversation for best guard in the class right there with Jay Navi. I think that he's not that far off from potentially being the best guard in the class. I would personally still take Ivy. I think Ivy's just a much better athlete at the guard spot. And when you factor in his, his end-to-end speed, his ability to be a blur in, in the open court as well as be able to navigate different situations in the half court, the step up that he's taken in his passing and his playmaking overall. I would give Ivy the edge, but scoring guards like Davis don't always come around. And that's why I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to have him at number seven on the board. Number eight, Benedict Matherin out of Arizona, 18.3 points per game, 6.6 rebounds, 2.1 assists. Shooting 49% from the field overall, 37.8% from three-point range, 79.6% from the free throw line, a true shooting percentage of 61.8 and a 23 PER. When you use the word upside, as you can see, that I, I believe there, there's only so many players ahead of him who potentially have more upside in this draft class than Matherin. Some of the things that Matherin's done that I've seen him do on film this year I've said this on other podcasts, but he just reminds me a lot of where Andrew Wiggins is at right now. That type of 
polished scoring prospect. He's not perfect off the dribble. He's not this amazing creator for others, although he's gotten much better at his live dribble passing this year in, in, in a smaller sample size. But his potential two-way impact, the way that he floats around the court, the way that he gets after it in transition, his his, his hustle, his, his, his grind, his tenacity on both ends of the floor. I love that he likes doing the dirty work, especially when you factor in he's in the 100 percentile on offensive rebounds and putbacks. He's in the 78th percentile on cuts. 64th percentile off screen, 63rd percentile in terms of scoring out of the pick and roll and 61st in transition. It's not the sexiest shot profile, but you flip on the tape, you can see some of the highlights where he creates shots for himself, where he hits open spot up shots, but then you also see him playing a role off the ball as well. Um, He's able to fit in alongside some of the other talent that this Arizona team has, which this team is loaded. They will absolutely be a final four contender. If you had to ask me who the four teams are to, to get to the final four. I would say that they're definitely one of the four I would bet a lot because of Matherin's ability to score from all three levels. He, we, we knew he was a good jump shooter coming in, but the fact that he's in the 73rd percentile on jump shots overall, he's finishing really well around the baskets in the 93rd percentile there. I just love the full offensive profile that I'm getting from Matherin. We can nitpick some of the playmaking things. Like I said, we can nitpick, his approach to defense to a certain extent, but he does like playing on that end. I wouldn't call him somebody who's going to lock guys up in the NBA, but he's going to give some guys a a tough time on on the wing, especially if he's asked to defend more twos in the NBA than threes. He's going to be a pest. So I like the upside that he brings to the table. I would have him number eight at the moment. I have A.J. Griffin at number nine ahead of Patrick Baldwin. And this is a massive rise back up the board for AJ Griffin. If you did listen to my preseason podcast, you would know that I called him um, a a top five or top six type of talent in this draft class. I skyrocketed him down my board because he wasn't getting consistent playing time for Duke. You heard some of the rumblings that he wasn't ready to impact the college game, that he wasn't practicing well, he wasn't understanding some of the concepts they were trying to teach in practice. But I think a lot of that is was really misread or there were a lot of poor signals that were thrown out about A.J. Griffin. I think it was more so to do with the fact that he was just coming back off the preseason injury. He was coming back slowly. They were ramping him up slowly because when he has gotten minutes on the court, and I'm not going to read off all of the numbers, I've gone through them on multiple podcasts. In the games where he's played 19 or more minutes, when they've actually given him a role, Matt Penny was smart to point out. He he has definitely racked up points and, and gotten opportunities in garbage time, but the fact that he's been able to get on the court when he has gotten minutes and produced the level that he has, and he's taken advantage of those opportunities, then you can't put up some of the numbers and some of the efficiencies that he has on different areas offensively and not know what you're doing on that end of the floor. It's just not possible. When you factor in, again, limited sample size because he's only played a handful of games, 19 or more minutes, but he still rates out in the 99th percentile in terms of total offense, 85th percentile on spot-ups, 97th on jump shots overall, 81st on catch-and-shoot looks, 99th percentile in terms of jump shots off the dribble. He does have enough attempts in these areas to at least rate out on the synergy percentiles and and, and rate out by the metrics. So that says something to me. When he's gotten opportunities so far, he's taken advantage of them. I would love to put him top five 
on my board. I would love to give him that fifth spot over Kendall Brown. The problem is, is that he has the injury history coming in. I don't even think a lot of teams have him graded top 10 right now. You, 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 can, you can argue to death about some of the film we have all you want, but teams just aren't going to buy in this quickly and this fast. They're going to want to see A.J. Griffin do this over a larger sample size, especially in ACC play. They're going to want to see his body hold up before they, they swing him back into the top 10 like he likely was for a lot of teams before the, this whole process started. Like when, when teams were, were going through and trying to figure out who might be one of the, the top five or top six guys come into this draft class when they were playing back in high school. Like A.J. Griffin was in that conversation. You go back and flip on some of the high school highlights, we know how talented, how nationally talented of a player he is. Like 6'6", 220, 225 pounds. There are not many two guards that are built like him. You see some of the the jump shots he takes and he makes in the mid-range or that he has taken and made so far. Like how many other guys in this draft class can take and make some of the shots that he is? It's really, he's in that same shot-making type of type of level that like a, like a Johnny Davis has shown. For example, Johnny Davis has done it on a more consistent basis this year because he's obviously had more opportunities and has more responsibility on his shoulders than somebody like an A.J. Griffin. An A.J. Griffin who has been coming off the bench. They already have Paolo Bencaro, Trevor Keels, Wendell Moore in the starting lineup, Jeremy Roach. But some of the flashes that Griffin has shown, man, you just sit back and you go, is, is he a top five talent in this class? That's been a major thing on social media to come out and say, I have A.J. Griffin top five or I have A.J. Griffin number one. I would like to rank him that high right now, too, but I can't because I know that a lot of teams definitely do not have him ranked that high. And I also want to be a little cautious with peddling the Griffin propaganda. So I'm going to leave him at nine right now, but he's another one of those guys who could absolutely move up a few spots on the board by the time it's all said and done. And then Patrick Baldwin, I've talked his case to death, too. I just I, I said it with Matt Penny on, on the last podcast. I refuse to rank Patrick Baldwin any lower than 10th. I know that a lot of the numbers against major the, the major competition that Milwaukee's been able to play, they aren't good. There have been some questionable things to point out on tape when you consider his fit with the team, his chemistry with his players overall. I'm just I'm gonna buy the talent that I saw in high school and I'm not gonna let some of these negative things impact my evaluation on him, especially when some of the numbers that I've talked about on other podcasts, they're not as bad as people want to make them out to be. So I'm going to leave Patrick Ball at number 10. The top 10 prospect on my last board, who really took a tumble this time around, is Jane Hardy at 11. I wrote about him along with some of the other G League Ignite players and some international players on the morning dunk that released this week. He just... <laughs> He, he just can't dribble the basketball, man. He, he is not a good handler of the basketball. That, I think, factors into his lack of shot-making ability more so than his mechanics, even more so than some of his shot selection. The fact that he can't create as easily because he's just not a good dribbler, it just makes the game so much harder for him than, than when he was back in high school. He could just kind of waltz up the floor and be able to bomb threes, and not a lot of defenders were, were hassling him because they knew that at 6'4", with his build, and the fact that he, he's not the quickest player in the world, but he's certainly not the slowest. Like If you, play, if you played up on Jaden Hardy too much in high school, 
he would be able to get around you. He'd be able to beat you. And then once he gets inside the arc, I think a lot of his shot making ability, his floater ability, his touch around the basket, his ability to finish through contact. I think a lot of that's been undersold through this process because so many people just want to focus on he's taking all these shots per game. A lot of them are jumpers. He's not making them. What the heck's going on with this guy who was billed as this top shelf scoring prospect in this draft class. So I think some of that's been undersold, but without that, creation ability off the bounce without that setup ability i can't have him higher than 11 right now can he climb back up a little bit and make the race in the top six top seven more interesting absolutely but in january and february especially that i will get a chance to see him up close against delaware's uh, against the delaware blue coats i really want to see more of that dribble ability come alive he, he has to improve that handle of his or else he could fall even further down my board. There's buzz that you see online. Chad, Chad Ford, for example, said that a lot, of, a lot of scouts, they've dropped him lower than 10. They've even dropped him as far as 20. That That's not necessarily a, a an overblown overreaction to what we've seen on the film. He was bad in those Vegas showcase games. He was bad. You can go back and you can look at some of the highlights for some of the other games that Knights played before they got to Vegas, especially that one game I can recall that I watched against Oklahoma City's G League team where he just took over at the end of that game from a shot-making perspective. He put that team on his back offensively, and he got the job done. But when defenses actually key in on him and play up on him at this level, then you factor in he doesn't have the same size as some of these other wings and guards that we can talk about, like an A.J. Griffin or a Matherin or a Davis. It makes life harder when you don't have that the, the, the creation ability off the bounce. And that's why I'm going to have him at number 11. And then number 12, Ty Ty Washington out of Kentucky has really grown on me the more I went back this previous week and watched some film. He's not the best athlete at the guard position, but I think he is craftier than some may want to give him credit for when he's created shots off the dribble, when he's gotten around a screen and pulled up, he's been making those shots. He's proven that he has to, he, he has that touch from outside the, the three point line. He's been able to finish inside. He's actually been an efficient scorer and shooter. He just hasn't been at least by the numbers an elite setup man. But to Coach Cal's credit, he's been playing Washington more now in these three-guard type of lineups. He's taken them. He, he's, he's split the time between him and Severe Wheeler. He's given Washington more opportunities to create and run um, point alongside two other guards like a Davion Mintz, for example, like a Kellen Brady. And Washington's been doing really well doing it. Getting involved in 1-5 pick-and-roll sets with Oscar Sheetway. I like what Washington's brought to the table. And that's why I'm going to have him at number 12, because you could make an argument some of these other wings or forwards could jump up and take that 12 spot, but somebody in the lottery is going to need a point guard. I have to give that spot to somebody, even though I don't love some of the other point guards in the class, which I'll get to as we go further down my board. Washington, to me, stands out as the one point guard that, that I think I can bet on taking in the lottery and actually living up to that promise. I think he, he will continue to get better. He may even continue to get better this season, 
who knows, maybe he could jump up a few more spots. I, I know some outlets do have him as high as nine or 10. I'm going to have him at 12. I'm confident in that ranking. And I like some of the flashes that he's shown on film. We'll see how he does in SEC play. 13, I have Nikola Jovic, who dropped slightly from the 1.0 edition of my board. My 1.0 board, I had him 10. Now I have him 13. Still see him as like that tier three type of starter in the NBA. I wrote about him in my morning dunk. That's why I won't go too in on the numbers. But his creation ability, his shot setup ability, his shot making ability, his competitive nature, his willingness to at least get out there and try to defend, his, his want to consistently dunk over each and every opponent he faces, his nastiness, his tenacity. I love all of those things about Jovic. He's not a perfect defender. He's not a perfect shooter. He's not a perfect scorer, but he's shown touch on film in enough areas that lead me to believe that he is a lottery-level talent in this class, and that's not even talking about the passing ability off a wide dribble, which also makes him pretty unique for a 6'10 forward his size as well. So I'm going to have Jovic at 13. Keegan Murray, the Iowa forward at 14. I'm still doing some deeper work in his evaluation. I really want to see what his numbers look like coming outside of Big Ten play. He's been the mid-major killer up to this point. I talked about it on previous podcasts, some of his numbers. When you look at like his efficiencies, his synergy percentile ratings, his PER, some of these numbers just make you fall out of a chair when you look at him. You can't believe that they're actually real numbers. But when he has played against better competition, his numbers have, have come down to earth a little bit. But – even somebody who's consistently putting up at a bare minimum, like 15 points, six rebounds, shooting efficiently from the field, showing some of the, the footwork defensively that you want to see from a forward his size, his rebounding ability. He's at least consistently good. Is he great all of the time? No, but he's at least consistently good. And to be perfectly honest, that's better than a lot of other players that I can evaluate right now in this draft class through the non-conference portion of college schedules. So I'm going to have Murray here at number 14. I don't feel great about it, but I feel good enough to have him here right now. 15, I have Trevor Keels, the Duke guard, or wing, however you want to classify him. I've been back and forth on Keels' evaluation as well. I don't love him here at this spot, but when you factor in how young he is, I know a lot of people on social media wanted to point out how good of a shooter he was dating back to high school. He has shown some encouraging signs as an open shot maker in college. When you flip on the film, the numbers, the, the percentages aren't great, but he has enough ability. He's built really well for, for a guard. He can get on you defensively. He can make things happen. He's another guy who can navigate passing out of pick and rolls. He can even pass out of some isolation sets when he's on an island. He can still make the right read, make the right right play to somebody else he's a willing passer he can finish around the rim and when he when he is knocking down open three-point shots his game looks really good on tape so that's why i'm going to have him at number 15 16 dyson daniels the g league ignite wing man daniels is such an interesting evaluation i wrote about daniels on the morning dunk and i'm also going to have a conversation with him on another podcast this week when i have chuck on from chucking darts He's somebody who I do want to dig a little deeper on, so I'm not going to spend too much time on him now. Just know that I was flirting with giving him a lottery grade. I have him at 16 right now. I don't, I don't love having him here. I don't know if I would have loved moving him up anymore. I wouldn't have liked moving him down any further. I think this is a good spot for Dyson Daniels right now, the 6'6 six, uh, six, six wing. 
He's had a lot of responsibility heaped onto his shoulders, essentially being the de facto point guard in a lot of different lineups for G League Ignite. I think it's more responsibility than an NBA team would put on shoulders. But nevertheless, he's at least done a good job navigating through a lot of it. I want to see more of the shot come around, but defensively, he's arguably the best guard defender in this class. He does have a good feel for the game. He can make a lot of the right passing reads. He has such he has such a high floor, maybe not the highest of upsides, but he has such a high floor. I think, I think in the mid-first round, that's a really good range for him. 17, Caleb Houston. I've talked about Houston on numerous podcasts. He's been better as the year has gone on, but he still hasn't blown me away. I don't love his creation ability off the bounce. I don't like how not explosive he can look at times off of an initial screen up top. I don't like his ability to I haven't liked his ability to finish around the basket. His his shots come alive a lot better from three-point range. He's still making over 36% of his three-point shots, so that's nice to see. But for somebody who we're, we're billing as not as exciting of a creator and more so an off-ball movement type of shooter who isn't lighting the world on fire defensively either, 17, I think, is a safe range for him to be right now. But I have seen some people have him even lower on their boards in, in, in like the early to mid-20s. I'll have him at 17 right now. 18, somebody who has climbed up my board a little bit, Wendell Moore. The, the Duke wing, he's in his junior season now. He looks so much more comfortable playing the game on both ends of the floor than he did his first two years. He's now averaging 17 points per game, five and a half rebounds per game, five assists, shooting almost 59% from the field, 41% from three-point range, 72.5% from the free throw line. That number's not great, but he has had some hot games shooting the basketball from distance overall, so that's really propped up some of those numbers. He's averaging over a steal per game, a 28.3 PER, and a 67.1 true shooting percentage, 94th percentile in total offense, 97th percentile scoring out of pick and rolls, 87th on spot-up looks, 76th in transition. He has good numbers when you factor in pick and rolls and isolations, including passes. As I mentioned, he's been hot shooting the basketball from the perimeter of late. Some of the jump shot numbers are propped up by a few performances. So whether you buy the shot continuing to fall – that's your prerogative. I am buying a lot of the improvements that I've seen from Wendell Moore. I do buy some of the setup ability that he's displaying on the regular at the college level. I do think a good amount of that can translate to the NBA game. And the fact that he's so much more vocal, he's always communicating with guys. He's really become the quarterback for this Duke team on both ends of the floor, not just offensively handling the ball, being the team de facto point guard, but also defensively really helping guys get in better spots and defend much better as a unit. I just love the leadership that I'm seeing right now from Wendell Moore. So as I've kind of said on social media a few times, he's trending more towards lottery than he is mid to late first round. So that's why I have him here at 18. 19, the most divisive player that I have on my board. Another guy who I'm going to be talking about with Chuck on another podcast this week, Tari Eason, the LSU forward. Listen, his numbers, if we just want to make a statistical argument for Tari, 15.8 points per game, 7.4 rebounds, 53% from the field. He's averaging over a steal and a block per game. I'll let Chuck get into some of the, the steal and block percentages. But a 33.8 PER, 60.6 true shooting percentage, 85th percentile in terms of total offense. 
He is making things happen for this LSU team, and he's doing it off the bench. He's not even starting, yet he's still averaging 15.8 points per game. I did pull his per 40 numbers, but I'm sure those would look much better than even what he's averaging right now. It's just he's a tough eval for me because I've seen some of these physical bully-type scorers come out of the draft before, and they do not succeed nearly as much as they do in the NBA, not nearly as efficient, not nearly as productive. But again, a lot of these other guys in this class just are not blowing me away. And at some point, you have to reward productivity. And Tari's been one of the most productive players in the country. Give him credit. He's helped and 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 in my opinion, an overperforming LSU team up to this point. We'll see how they fare against better competition in the in SEC play. But Tari's looked really good at times, but then you also take into account the evaluation when you watch enough of the film. He scores so much on open lanes and transition or dumps at the basket when there's literally nobody else around him. When he is bodied up by players who are as physical as him, if not even bigger in size and stature, he has struggled still finishing around the basket in those matchups. And that's what gives me a little bit of cause to pause in terms of fully buying in on his offensive output. Now, the one thing besides the defense that's really saving grace for me in terms of having him inside my top 20 when I initially questioned if he was even going to be a first-round type of talent in this class, his passing ability keeps him there for me. He's, he's made some impressive half-court reads when he's been put in positions where he could have as easily turned the ball over, but he's been able to make the read, get the ball out of his hand, and get it to somebody else for an easy scoring attempt. I do like some of the assists that he's had. It's not always there by the numbers because some of those guys aren't finishing those passes. But the fact that he does have that vision, the fact that he can keep the ball moving in the half court when he needs to, combined with his efficient play and transition, his athleticism, his defensive versatility, the fact that he can lock somebody up on the perimeter even easier than he can hold his own against size on the interior, the fact that He's one of those guys you can see potentially defending one through four at the NBA level. That's impressive enough to me in, in a class where I am pretty underwhelmed up to this point to have him inside of my top 20. And then at number 20, this is where we get into a log jam of some of the other point guards that are currently projected as first rounders. I have Jean Montero at 20, Kennedy Chandler at 21, J.D. Davison at 22, I won't spend a ton of time on the point guards here. I've talked so much about them either on previous podcasts or on social media when I've said, I just don't see a lot of starting level point guard talent in this NBA draft class. Excuse me. I just don't. And playing point guard in the NBA, that's such a high bar, such a high threshold to clear. There's only so many jobs available. It's not as interchangeable of a position like we have. If you're playing two through four in the NBA, it's not as interchangeable of a position in the pro leagues as playing the one or the five. Those are the two positions that matter the most more than anything because they're the two positions on the floor with the most responsibility tied to them on both ends. You have to be able to communicate well and lead from the point guard spot. You have to know how to take a measured approach at getting others involved as much as getting your own shot. And then defensively, you have to set the tone of the point of attack. And I love Kennedy Chandler's defense. 
I like J.D. Davison's defense enough. I'm not sold whatsoever on John Montero's defensive ability, but offensively, as I wrote about in my column this morning, he has some of the highest highs that you can see on film in this class, but he also has some of the lowest of lows effectively playing against high school competition. He's not even playing in the same level of competition as a Chandler, as a Davison, as a Washington. So this is a chunk that I've left here, this 20 to 22 range for these point guards. Folks, I, I said on social media before I was recording this podcast that a few people might be surprised with some of the things I'd say on here or some of the places I'd have some of these players ranked. I'm not going to leave it off the table that one or more of these point guards in this tier right here in this little cluster don't even make it to my top 30 by the time I do a next edition of the board. In moments where I want to be blown away or I want to see significant ability, all three of these guys have fallen short when I've wanted to see it from them. When I've gone back and I've watched Montero in, in some of these overtime elite games that, that aren't the best of competition, when I've seen Chandler go up against teams with, with great positional size almost everywhere, like a Texas Tech or an Arizona, when I've seen Davison struggle against a Davidson team who Young Jung Lee to his credit, he's an exciting guard prospect, somebody who could hear his name called on draft night. But other than that, that, that Davidson backcourt isn't blowing anybody away. And I know Davidson's coming off the bench. He's not starting for that Alabama team. But given the type of athlete that he is at that guard spot, you want to see him impact the game more than he has. He piles up turnovers. I, I've talked about it at length. He's not a good pass. He's not a great passer. He's not even a good passer. I'd say he's solid, trending more down towards mediocre. He's just not a good passer. I think that he's a year away from really grasping more concepts in terms of playmaking. I think that all three of these guys, in my honest opinion, would be better suited coming off an NBA bench than being a starting point guard. So I kind of have him clustered here. We'll see how this clump ultimately breaks up as the scouting period goes along. But I'm not sold on any of these guys being starting point guards. It would not shock me, like I said if one or more of them maybe moved out of my top 30 in favor of some of the other guys that I'll talk about in the honorable mentions, who I still have my eye on, who could definitely jump up, and some of them have even more experience than some of these freshman equivalent guards. At 23, Ochai Baji, the Kansas wing, having one of the best seasons in the country, firmly in the race for National Player of the Year. We've talked about it on previous pods. My, my, favorite, my favorite phrase to say tonight, but it, it is true. I've talked about a lot of these guys that we're talking about already at length, but Abaji has made enough improvements off the dribble. He's been a better passer this year. He's settled for less mid-range jumpers that, that, that make me want to just throw a clipboard through my TV. He's settled for less of them, but he still takes some of them. When his responsibility is just cutting to the basket, getting open looks in transition, hitting open spot-up threes, and then defending his position, either the two or the three, he really looks like an NBA role player. And especially when you factor in his athletic ability, he does vertically pop off your screen for a 6'5 guard, wing, however you want to classify him positionally. I know some people um, who are smart, smarter evaluators than I am have him as a lottery-type grade. I have him... In this 23-24 this range, I've kind of had him this way since the 1.0 board. I'll leave him here. He has caught my eye, though. And if we're talking about 
role players who we could project to have a, a near immediate impact in the NBA, he'd be near the top of that list. Marjan Beauchamp, the G League Ignite Wing at 24. I also wrote about him in the G League portion of the column this morning. Best transition wing, in my opinion, in this class. He's done a much better job of getting involved in half-court offense, cutting to the basket, making those timely reads, just affecting the game without the ball as best as he can because he's not an elite creator when he has the ball in his hands. He's not a setup guy. He's not an isolation type of shot maker. He's not a good jump shooter. But defensively, he's not he's not as good of an on-ball defender technically as Dyson Daniels is, for example, on that team but he is a disruptor. He's a pest off the ball. He doubles and traps really well. He forces turnovers. And when he gets that steal and he gets out in the break, he's likely going to finish it on the other end. I do like his finishing package around the basket. He's a good, 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 good interior scorer. So I like Beauchamp here. Again, not the sexiest of prospects, but when we talk about some of these other names that haven't blown me away, you look at somebody who has produced in the G League environment and you start to look around and say, why can't he be higher on my board? I know ESPN's latest projection, I, I wrote about this morning, I think it was their, their mock draft that had him like 15th or something like that. It was either their mock draft or the latest big board update had him like 15th. I, I can't get around to having him that high, but he is firmly now in the first round conversation for me. He's, he's one of the likelier bets I'd make on players to actually go in the first round at this point, unless he just completely pitfalls and bottoms out over these next two months where we're G League United will be um, going against a lot of different teams and exhibition. He's, he's one of the guys I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the most when I see Ignite later, later this month. 25, newcomer on the board, Blake Wesley, guard out of Notre Dame, averaging 13.3 points per game, 2.9 rebounds, 2.2 assists, shooting almost 45% from the field, 34% for three-point range, you want to see the free throw percentage come up a little bit, 67.6%. He's been one of the best shot creators in this draft class period off the bounce. He's hit a lot of tough shots for that Notre Dame team. He's already hit a game winner this year. He's in the 98th percentile in terms of scoring out of isolation, 71st percentile in transition, so he runs out really well. He understands how to fill the lane, get out in transition. 55th percentile in terms of pick and roll scoring, but 71st in pick and rolls, including passes. So, when you factor in his combo guard type of role that he's played for Notre Dame, but really initiating a lot of that offense, being asked to have a lot of that res offensive responsibility on his shoulders as a true freshman, I really like a lot of what I've seen from from Blake Wesley. Blake Wesley, excuse me, and he's not a bad athlete either. Wouldn't call him a great athlete, but he's definitely a good athlete, and he's six five, so he has size to him in that backcourt. Um, and, and and defensively, there's definitely areas for him to improve on the ball mechanically, how he approaches different angles, how he can maybe look better to, to take things away from certain ball handlers on the perimeter, especially when you factor in his size and length. But offensively, I think Wesley has absolutely entered himself into the first round conversation. And out of some of these freshmen that we could talk about who haven't blown me away, Wesley wasn't even on my radar coming into the season, but he is firmly on it now. And I would expect Wesley to end up in the top 30 of, of my board as the year goes on. He's one of those young guys who, when you start to think about projecting out two, three years down the road, I could absolutely see him as like a tier three type of prospect. And then 26, Hugo Basson for the New Zealand Breakers, 6'3 combo guard, reminds you a little bit of Tyler Hero when you flip the film on. 
I like what I've seen from him. The The reason why I wouldn't have him higher is because I don't see him as a point guard. I know that was something he might have been initially projected as before the scouting period started. When you actually flip on the tape, you watch some of these breakers games, he's not a point guard. He's not a great setup man, but he's an exciting jump shooter off the bounce. He's an exciting scoring guard overall. So as one of these types of players we can project, like first guy off the bench, six-man type role, scoring specialist off the bench for an NBA team. I love I love Hugo in that type of a role, so I'll have him at 26. And then 27 through 30, Harrison Ingram out of Stanford, Jeremy Sohan out of Baylor, Bryce McGowan's out of Nebraska, and Christian Brown enters the first-round conversation out of Kansas. I'm not in love necessarily with having these guys at the end of the first round, except for Sohan. I think Sohan's done a lot to really impress me on film. That game that he had yesterday against Iowa State was sensational. He's doing a lot of the easy things, but you can also tell how intelligent of a player he is on both ends of the floor when you factor in his physical tools, his skill level. I really like a lot of what I'm seeing from Sohan. It is not crazy for him to be – the guy out of this like 25 through 30 group, if he's the one guy to rise up and get himself maybe into that top 20 conversation as we get further along in the scouting period. The other guy would obviously be McGowan's, who I was initially high on. I had McGowan's in the mid-first round on the first edition of my board. He just has not created or, or shot well from the field. And you flip on the tape, some of the things you see on film – you don't want to completely give up on him as a first-round talent in this draft if he declares. But I think if he if he came back to school for another year, took the time to get himself stronger, really improved his body, I think that would go leaps and bounds in helping him finish around the basket and actually better create and do some of the things off the bounce that he wants to do. But you can't knock his aggressiveness, and his attentiveness, the detail on both ends of the floor. I think he's been a better defender than the numbers would necessarily give him credit for. I don't hate him on that end. I think he's competitive. I still like that he gets to the free throw line. I like him as a prospect. It just, I, I really teetered with having him outside of this top 30 initially and having a guy like my next guy up would probably be Jordan Hall out of St. Joe's. I really liked what I saw from him when I went to go scout him in person, but Jordan Hall and Christian Brown are definitely two guys that are right there, that 30 to 32 range that I'm monitoring to see if some of these other freshmen maybe take a step back. As conference play goes along, maybe Jordan Hall steps into that first-round conversation, but I really like him as a value pick in this draft. So that's my 2.0 board. That's my top 30. Honorable mentions, guys who I just don't think are ready to be in that first-round conversation up to this point, Max Christie, Usman Diang, Peyton Watson, and then you have some experienced guys that I'm watching as well. Alan Flanagan just got back into the mix for Auburn. It would not shock me if he played his way into the top 30. EJ Liddell for Ohio State has put up excellent numbers in his junior season. Terrence Shannon has been really good and has shown some more creativity on the ball that we could give him credit for. Yannick Sosa is still another international name to watch who I didn't write about this morning. I just haven't heard great things about his stock and, and where it's at overall. And then the last name, the last two names I'll call out to watch, one of them I'm going to be talking about with Chuck later this week, Walker Kessler out of Auburn. If I'm going to take a center in that late first, early second range, the other popular names to throw in there are Mark Williams and Christian Coloco. At this point, I think Walker Kessler's the, <laughs> the best name out of the three. It would not shock me to see him taken ultimately in the first round. And the other guy who, man, I really flirted with throwing him in my top 30 as well. He was He was right there for me with Jordan Hall close to getting in. Michael Foster Jr. 
out of the G League Ignite. I talked about it a little bit in my column this morning. I did not realize when he actually started playing higher-level competition basketball. 14 years old, folks. He's really been playing true team basketball only since the age of 14. He only has like four or five years under his belt. And the fact that he's been a double-double machine still for Team Ignite, the fact that he was still one of the higher-ranked prospects in his high school class, when you factor that in, we give a lot of other players the benefit of the doubt for being young in age in terms of their, their basketball playing time. You kind of want to give Michael Foster a little bit of the benefit of the doubt when, when one of the easiest criticisms to have of him is that he just doesn't look like he knows what he's doing at, at times on either end of the floor. I can start to excuse that a little bit more, especially when you factor in he is producing. He is putting up points. He is grabbing rebounds on both ends. He's hitting jump shots. At his best, he looks like a Jermichael Green type of player. I'm a big fan of Jermichael Green as a pro talent. When he was starting for the Memphis Grizzlies for those few years, I was so happy that he got that opportunity. Michael Foster's more athletic than Jermichael Green is. And Jermichael Green wasn't even a bad athlete And when he was playing in Alabama. He's actually a pretty good athlete for somebody his size. But that's the type of forward I could see Michael Foster being. And even if he wouldn't have a ceiling higher than that, that type of player is worth betting on at this point when, when we talk about some of the other names that, that I rattled off and some of the other names even below him. Um, the, the one guy that I want to call out who did fall out of my top 30, but still firmly in the race in that like 31 to 45 range, Julian Strother for Gonzaga. It's not that, it's not that he's played poorly. I just haven't seen him quite assert himself to where I think he should be deserving of one of those top 30 slots. He's not a guy who I see get a lot of buzz outside of our no ceilings community. I still believe in him as a prospect. He could still be a first rounder in 2022. So some of those other names that I talked about, Wesley, uh, Hugo, Ingram, Sohan, McGowan's Brown, they're, they're ahead of Strother for me right now because I think they can do a few more things on the court, especially offensively than he can, but still a guy that I'm watching at great length. And obviously some names that some of the other no ceilings folks are high on Jaime Jaquez at UCLA, Jabari Walker at Colorado, Julian Champetti. I already mentioned Coloco. One more name to really watch break into this race. I know Matt Babcock over at Babcock Hoops has been high on him. Musa Diabate, the Michigan forward. I think he's, he's too raw for me at this current moment in time, but when he gives you glimpses and he puts it together for stretches like he did in that North Carolina game, he makes you sit back in your seat and go, why isn't this guy one of the top 30 players in this draft class? Not blowing you away necessarily from a skills perspective, but when he does put some things together, especially offensively, he can look impressive at times. And he is 6'11", 210, one of those more versatile type of forwards that he can project on the defensive end. So those are some names to definitely watch. Maybe I'll do a podcast over the next week or two where I go into some of the, the second round sleeper type of names. I go through some of the other guys I have labels on or mention on the board. We'll see what, what the content schedule bears itself out to be. But that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode, my, my long-winded explanations behind my updated big board. I will make sure to have an updated version of my big board posted on social media as well, accompanying the release of this podcast. So make sure you're following me on my social media account, my Twitter account, at Draft Deeper, to see the physical 
copy of that board to follow along with this podcast. Subscribe to the Draft Deeper podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Stay locked in. So much great content coming over the next week. Like I said, Tyler will be back on or doing a podcast with Chuck. Next week, next Monday, instead of recording with Tyler, I will be having another big-time guest on this podcast. If you were listening attentively to this episode, I already said his name once. So use that as a clue to who I'll be having on. But thank you so much again for your support. Hope, hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. Hope everyone's locked back in the draft season. Plenty of content coming for Draft Deeper and No Ceilings. So stay tuned. Have a wonderful rest of your week.